Hello, and welcome to the latest Top in Tech podcast. My name is Conan Darcy. I am the host for today, and I am the Senior Practice Director for Tech, Media, and Telecoms at Global Council. I'm delighted today to be joined by Benedict Evans. Benedict is one of the leading independent analysts of the tech sector. He has a weekly newsletter that goes out to hundreds of thousands of subscribers. He hosts his own tech podcast called Another Podcast, and he has a background in equity research, consulting, and venture capital, including a prior life as a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. So, Benedict, thank you very much for joining us today and welcome. What I want to do today, Benedict, is cover three basic topics. Um, The first is to start with the market situation, what we're seeing with the current downturn and what we might infer from that for the tech sector specifically. The second is then to look at, are there implications from this then for competition policy and antitrust? And then as a policy podcast, to finally focus on, are there any regulatory and policy lessons that we should be learning or should be looking at, particularly with reference to previous crises and the experience that we've seen before? The context here is we have seen a series of dire warnings. Uh, Your own newsletter talked about in Meta, they've warned about fierce headwinds to staff coming their way. Sequoia released one of its regular presentations where it talked about a crucible moment for startups. It even was quoting Darwin that it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change. And their message to startups was cut costs now to avoid being sunk by having too many costs in six to 12 months time. So not a positive outlook for the sector. So I wanted to start there. I mean, how do you see the macro situation in the economy with inflation? How do you see that filtering through to venture capital, to startups, and to the tech sector more broadly? So I think I'd kind of maybe split apart three sort of fundamental trends. The first is that there's clearly been a collapse of a crypto bubble. The second, and there's a lot of kind of implications and consequences of that and dynamics within that. The second is that there's been a crash in the public markets, which flows back through to um, private market valuations for technology companies and the amounts of money that they should expect to raise and the terms they can raise and the kinds of businesses that can raise um, for those companies that need to raise capital. And the third is a kind of broader macro environment which changes what those companies' customers are willing and able to spend. And so when Meta says, you know, batten down the hatches, they're basically talking about ad budgets from big companies and the amount of money that Procter & Gamble is going to spend on buying ads on Facebook. And that's not quite, that's sort of a separate kind of conversation to you are building HR enterprise SaaS and you're expected to raise at X and now you're going to be able to raise at a third of X. Um, But all of those then sort of combine if you're working in technology or dealing with technology companies that, you know, we've had a 10 year bull market maybe longer, 15, almost 15-year bull market, uh, where everything was great and the numbers always went up. And there's a whole bunch of people that have never really experienced layoffs and have never really experienced, hang on a second, we're not meeting our numbers. And now they will. The Sequoia memo and what you sort of just described there, so 15 years of, of bull market, the Sequoia memo evokes sort of the dot-com crash. I think it actually starts talking about the experience that companies like PayPal had in the, the yeah. early 2000s. I mean, do you see parallels between what happened then when we saw a sort of thinning out of the market and some a refinement perhaps of what were the most competitive tech players who then came through to dominate the 2000s and what we're seeing now? 
So I think I would separate crypto from the broader tech industry. I think crypto definitely had a bubble in the last year, 18 months. And I think for the broader tech industry, there's not really a good parallel at all because the situation in kind of 1990,000 was um, the, the amount of real money coming into the startup world was relatively small as a percentage of the activity. So you had an awful lot of recycled capital. You know, company raises $10 million, spends it with five vendors, which then spend it with five vendors, which then spend. And so, you know, eight, six months later, that $10 million of fundraising has turned into $100 million of revenue across all these different companies. And that's not the case now. The case now is that you know, 40% of UK non-food e-commerce, sorry, 40% of UK non-food retail is online. Nobody's going to go back to spending a million dollars on a New York City taxi cab medallion. So this is now a real industry with real revenue and real customers. So you're not going to see that sort of leverage collapse of you know great chunks of the industry that you had in 2001, 2002. Part of what happened in 2001, 2002 was even the people that were profitable discovered that all of their customers weren't profitable. So you had, I mean, this was Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz's company, LoudCloud. They were doing fine, and then all their customers went out of business. And then they weren't, because all their customers were dependent on the capital markets. And that's not the case today in anything like the same way. And so you won't have that kind of leverage collapse in the broader tech economy. However, you have a portion of the kind of tech industry that has been optimizing for growth as opposed to optimizing for profitability. And not all of it will be able to pivot towards um, profits now as opposed to profits in five years when you are a lot bigger. And, you know, a lot of it is dependent on the broader economy, which is kind of the Facebook point. You know, Facebook is not dependent on capital raising. They're very profitable. But the money comes from large advertisers giving them money. And if those large advertisers cut their budgets because consumers cut their budgets, then Facebook's revenue will, will slow down. Um, and so this is, you kind of, as I said, you kind of have to separate out those different stories. So let's, let, let, let's do that. Let's focus on a couple of those, those elements. So you made the point there that, in some senses, there was a prioritization of growth over profitability. That was the sort of story of the last few years. And Sequoia made the point, capital was free, now it's expensive. So if capital was free then, and all these companies ran up massive costs, we are now seeing it's expensive. So the outlook for, for a sector like that is looking uh, pretty fragile. What were the investors, what were the VCs betting on here? Was it consolidation? Was it the idea of a monopoly position? What was the thinking behind something that even before the economy started going down, all of us thought some of those discounts looked a little bit... Uh, so, so several different moving parts here. I mean, the first of them is, and you know, maybe this is too obvious to say, but I, I feel I should say it anyway, is all new businesses start out losing money. That's the plan. That's inherent in what it is to start a new business. And the question is, um, how quickly do you aim to get to cash flow break even? And how quickly should you aim to get to cash flow break even? Um, and that kind of depends on your margin structure and the availability of capital and the size of the market and whether there are um, the phrases winner takes all dynamics in that market. And so if capital is free and um, you have no marginal cost, and there are strong winner-takes-all effects, then you should absolutely be postponing even revenue, never mind profit. And the classic case study here is Facebook. You know, should Facebook have slowed down and tried to get to profitability in 2008? Absolutely not. That would have been a terrible decision. Um, and indeed, part of the reason that MySpace went out of business is because they slowed down and tried to make money as opposed to thinking about optimizing for the business. And the crucial thing to understand here is marginal cost. 
if you don't have marginal cost, if you have very high gross margins, and Facebook today has like 80, 85% gross margins, then revenue is a feature. It's something you can add later once you've accrued the value of building a product that people love and that, that hundreds of millions of people use. When you have those winner-takes-all effects, um, that you have a network effect, so you, there will only be one of these. And so if you can become that one, and you've got hundreds of millions of people using the product, and you basically don't have marginal cost for every time that someone posts a picture or very little marginal cost, then you should get to be the place that everyone posts the pictures first, and then add the money. And as we know, Facebook is becoming enormously profitable. On the other hand, if what you're doing is putting food on the back of a moped and getting somebody to take it to somebody's home, then you don't have 80% gross margins. You have 20 or 30% gross margins. And you need to know what your path to profitability is before you've done your first delivery. Um, and so it's really important to kind of understand the difference between those two kinds of business. The way I kind of describe this is they're kind of rocket ships and tractors. So if you're a rocket ship, and you're going up really fast, don't start arguing about what the thrust to weight ratio is. The thrust to weight ratio is lots. And once you've got into orbit, you can worry about how you make money. On the other hand, there's other businesses that you might call a tractor. Like it's all about the gearing ratio. How heavy is the trailer? How thick is the mud? How many wheels are there in the gearbox? What horsepower do you have? And that's the difference between moving forward and not moving forward at all. And you kind of have to understand which of those you're looking at. And a local delivery company, a one-hour grocery company, is a classic low-margin business. Same thing, incidentally, with WeWork. Um, it also seems clear that one-hour grocery delivery can get to cash flow break-even, although not at a very high margin, in certain population densities with certain levels of competition. And so the thesis would be, if there's only two players and you've got the right market share and the right penetration and enough people doing this to load up your fixed cost base, then you can get to break even. So if there's only people do it, if there's only two people doing it and you've got 30% penetration, then you've got enough people using your fixed cost base to cover your costs and get you to cash flow break even and produce a return. The problem is, what do you have to do to get there? And what if there's four people and what if you've deployed in a whole bunch of cities where you're not profitable yet and you're five years from being profitable? And what if the only way for you to get to that 30% penetration or whatever the penetration you need is, is to spend X hundred million dollars on customer acquisition? And so you can get into this kind of dangerous place where you say to yourselves, it's we're going to use capital as a weapon because capital is cheap. We're going to spend billions of dollars, billions of dollars to get to the point that we are the one winner or the one of two winners. And then we will have 20% Gross margin and 1% free cash flow margin, and that's all we need. Now, whether that cash flow margin is actually enough to justify the investment is a whole other question, but at least you've got to the point that you're making money, which I don't think any of them are doing yet. Now, when money ceases to be free, and people's tolerance of waiting five years to get to break even in a low margin business changes, then that scenario can look very, very different. On the other hand, if you're building an HR enterprise SaaS company with an ACV of $10,000, all of those numbers are completely different and your calculation is completely different. On the Insta commerce side, it just feels like every time you, you see a bus go past in London, there's a new advert for a new instant commerce company looking to do that one hour delivery. And it just has, a, has had a sense for a while that there's an overly crowded market there, at least in London. Uh, yeah, there's going to so be a bunch of smoking holes in the ground. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, it's, we'll, we'll come on to this uh, in a second, but just it's interesting just to understand a little bit more around where, where VCs are thinking on this. But I want, I want to quickly take... Well, none of this money is VCs. So to expand on that. A lot of the dynamic that you've had in the funding of um, private technology companies, and I'm using that word, not startups, because is... Um, so first of all, you used to be that a startup would go public at maybe $100 million. And now you might not be public at 50 billion. Part of that is Saban's Oxley. Part of that is that you shouldn't, probably shouldn't be a public company until you've reached a certain degree of stability. And if the market opportunity is hundreds of billions of dollars globally, then the point at which you should stop going and start going for stability is probably not $100 million. It's probably billions of dollars. So that gets you to a situation in which you have, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 billion dollar companies that are not public. So when somebody gives a $5 billion check or a billion dollar check to a $25 billion company, that's not a VC. VCs don't have billions of dollars. And it's, they're all, and it's also not a startup, really, um, in any kind of meaningful sense. It's not meaningful to call that a startup. I mean, this is the thing that drove me crazy as a sort of a prominent West Coast literary magazine did this whole piece about Theranos and they described Rupert Murdoch as a VC. It's like, which is kind of like calling the New Yorker a book because it's words printed on paper. Like, no, it's not a book. It's a magazine. And you have to understand books and magazines are really different. And you kind of had to understand about Theranos. No, they, the people investing by and large were not VCs. And that was important. They were people whose VC's job is to understand what she was trying to do. They were not biotech VCs. They were people who knew nothing about startups and nothing about biotech. And that was part of the story. That was who she was raising from. And it's kind of the same point now. Who is investing these tens of billions? Who is invest writing $100 million checks in these companies? It's not venture capitalists. It's public market investors by and large. So it's everyone from T. Ray Price to Fidelity to a particular firm called Tiger Global that are saying, well, if all the returns are in private markets, that's where we're going to go. And so, particularly Tiger Global, this is sort of fascinating story, is a public markets hedge fund that decided that what we should do is we should invest in dozens or hundreds of private market tech companies on the basis that, A, the opportunity is so big that when they work, they're not $100 million, they're billion dollars. And B, if half of them lose money and only one of them works, then that makes sense. And of course, for venture capital, that was why you wrote a $10 million check. But for Tiger, they said, well, maybe that justifies writing a $100 million check. And so Tiger did over, 100, did over 400 deals in the last 12 months. And they hired um, Bain to do the due diligence for them, to just to be able to handle that volume to be, and have the operations of doing. It's not, like buying, it's not like buying stock. You don't just go to the stock exchange and give them money. You actually have to go and like do a deal. Um, and so part of that, you know, while one says, quote, unquote, free money, well, what was the instrumentality of that? Well, it was not venture capitalists. It was growth funds and hedge funds and, um, and public markets investors pouring into private capital. Is the concern which you think that Meta has voiced about anticipate, just about anticipated lower advertising spend, or is it also mixed in with, I know you've spoken about this in the past, the competition that they are seeing in the advertising market from Amazon making a big play in advertising yeah. via Apple, not only as a new competitor, well, not a new competitor, but a comp- an increased competitor, but also uh, 
a gateway which has uh, limited their ability to uh, do certain things via tracking limitations mm. or indeed via TikTok and others sort of coming through and grabbing their share. I mean, is it a sort of a double whammy that we're seeing for Meta? Well, that sounds things? like a kind of quadruple whammy. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, the old politi- UK political reference. So, so look, I mean, I think the primary point that, that Chris Cox was making was about macro. You know, it's a macro ad environment, the consumer order, consumer spending, and, that, and the consequences that has for, for their business. Um, and, you know, Meta is an ad business. You know, it's like the old joke, you know, the trouble with monopolies is how many there are to choose from. And, you know, the idea that, that, that Facebook has a monopoly on social is just kind of preposterous. Um, you know, it's something you would only say if you didn't really pay any attention to the market. Ironically, least of all in the USA, Whereas, you know, in Europe, WhatsApp basically one person-to-person messaging, whereas in the USA, iMessage is one person-to-person messaging, which is Apple's product. WhatsApp is basically nowhere. Um, And so um, then you have TikTok, which is sort of, I think it's like kind of dark matter. It's like theoretically, you know that TikTok is big. But I don't think people have kind of internalized the share of consumption and the sheer volume of, of the sort of shift in time spent that it has. You know, it's bigger than YouTube now. Um, you know, YouTube is bigger than, in the UK for 16 to 34s. UK is bigger than all UK broadcast, like the whole thing. And plus iPlayer, plus Catch-Up, the whole thing. YouTube is bigger than all UK broadcasts. TikTok is probably bigger. Um, and so that has this effect on popular culture, on, you know, obviously. Like the date, you know, the American politicians are worried about user data, which seems to me kind of bizarre because what's the data that TikTok has about you other than what videos you like? But it's also that it's a media brand. You know, they're deciding what you see, which to me is much more interesting. It's a quite sense of Chinese influence than the, the user data. But like, is TikTok competing with Instagram? or with YouTube or both or like well yes um, how do they think about Snap well Snap is still there uh, Snap hasn't gone away iMessage is the dominant messaging application so there's a you know pretty aggressive competitive landscape for, for Meta on that front meanwhile Amazon built an ad business in the last couple of years that did 31 billion dollars in 2021 which is roughly the same size as YouTube and roughly the same size as the entire global newspaper industry or newspaper industry's ad revenue it's the same also the same size as Google Display so you know this is not a static and benign environment for anybody in online advertising um, now the Apple issue is sort of interesting because I have a sort of slightly contrarian view that I think is, is Apple has been grossly self-serving Apple does personalization you do tracking they are violating fundamental human rights and Apple has this very self-serving and selective use of wording and steering and kind of dark patterns in how they explain why it's okay for Apple to watch every thing you do and show you ads and not okay for anybody else to do that Um, and a very kind of sort of tortuous logic behind that but the net of this is i think the other kind of contrarian point you could say is that what apple has really done is apply the cookie law to apps and it's kind of a useful way of thinking about the att idfa thing is they basically said that apps have to act the same way as the cookie law says that websites have to act which is you have this really obnoxious and kind of user hostile permissions box that offers you says all sorts of scary things and makes people say no now the practical effect of, of and you kind of zoom up to the kind of the sixty-five thousand foot view of this the practical effect of the kind of the cookie apocalypse and all the wave of privacy regulations is that effective targeting gets pushed inside silos of large large silos of first party data which means google meta Amazon, to some extent, larger media properties like the New York Times or The Guardian um, or Snapchat, um, to a lesser extent, um, just because they're smaller. Um, It makes it harder for smaller publishers. It makes it harder for new brands to enter. It reduces competition. 
it does that to some extent in the name of concerns about privacy that are pretty nebulous and hard to pin down. It's like, what exactly is it that you think is happening here? Um, and it's also incidentally led to the sort of wave of what's now called merchant media, of which Amazon advertising is one part, which is, but it's not just Amazon. It's Uber is doing ads, delivery is doing ads, Walgreens is starting an advertising network. Anyone who has lots of traffic and some data about the users is starting advertising. Um, and so um, there's a lot of moving parts around the advertising environment and the consumer like, I don't know what you would even call it, or the what do you do on your smartphone to kill time market. I mean, it's a classic competition conversation is market definition, you know, because, you know, Coca-Cola will say they compete with water and the competition agency will say, no, you compete with, you know, brown fizzy drinks in cans with red logos and you don't even compete competition agency will say they don't even compete with pepsi they'll say you've got a comp you've got a monopoly in the market for coca-cola and coca-cola will say we compete with with water and alcohol and everything and ferrari will say they compete with luxury watches so there's a so this is on one level this is just a kind of the generic issue within competition law is how do you do market definition i think the interesting problem is that in most industries, like the entire nature of the industry doesn't change that often. Whereas in tech, it changes like every 10 years or so. And so, you know, Microsoft didn't do mainframes. Google didn't do PC operating systems. Facebook didn't do a search engine. You know, imagine imagine having a conversa- competition conversation around Google and Facebook in 2005. You know, everyone in Brussels would have said, well, obviously Facebook is doomed because Google's got all the data and it didn't kind of didn't work out like that. And so in tech, the big competitive threat comes from somebody changing the nature of the market. And that happens every 10 years, not every 50 years. It's not like, you know, ocean liner railways and ocean liners get have to compete with airliners. And that happened after 150 years. It's more like every 10 years, which can actually be within inside the, the reaction cycle of a regulator. Um, and so, you know, and one of Amazon's biggest competitive questions is Shopify, which is 45% of the size of Amazon marketplace. Shopify did $175 billion of GMV last year. And that basically, nobody had heard of it five years ago. And it's not a consumer-facing brand. Like there, you go to Shopify.com, you can't buy anything except Shopify. And so like, if you were trying to do a market definition, like how, what, how would you put Shopify in the same market as Amazon marketplace? So if we take the advertising example and... We think so. If we started with the with the economic circumstances that we are facing, that the tech sector is facing, and trying to drill down to what impact this may have on policy, if you're sitting in the legal offices of Meta, I mean, one plus side of you know what Chris Cox was saying is that not only is there going to be reduced ad spend, but there may be and there is more potential competition in the market, depending on how you define the market. So if you're Meta or if you're Alphabet, Google, presumably part of what they're going to be saying now to competition authorities around the world is you need to focus on us less. You need to start looking at Amazon. You need to start looking at Apple. You need to start looking at TikTok. The market is diverse. You don't need to be investigating us to the extent that you already are. The, the challenge in these kind of conversations is the tendency of the regulator to, to respond, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? And the issue is, yes, they would, but you do actually have to sort of sit and think about, well, what is TikTok's share of time spent? 
as an advertiser now? And what do you think about TikToks as, as you know, all the stories now about TikTok trying to ramp up their ad revenue? What do you think the competitive dynamic in online advertising is? Because if you sit and say that Facebook only has a monopoly in Facebook advertising, that's a nice kind of intellectually sealed box argument that you can win in a court in Brussels or New York or, um, or Washington. But is that actually reflecting the reality of the market? And is, is, it, is it actually sort of solving the problem that you want to solve? If the problem you want to solve is how do I get my name into the papers and get promoted to the next gig, fine. But you know what what is actually the competitive dynamic going on here? I mean, I, I mean, it's back to the kind of Facebook specifically. I mean, it's kind of interesting to compare conversations around Google and Apple and Facebook today with conversations around Apple, sorry, around Microsoft 20 years ago. And you can kind of sit and look at the arguments that these companies make and say, yeah, Microsoft tried all of those and it didn't work. Also, in hindsight, how many of the points that Microsoft made were true? So, you know, when Microsoft said, why are you asking us to unbundle the video player from Windows? So somebody gets a Windows PC and it can't play videos. How is that good for anybody? And today it sounds preposterous, but the EU forced them to sell a version of Windows that had no video player. Now, in the late 90s, it seemed reasonable to say it was unfair that Windows came with a web browser that was set by default. I don't think anybody today would say it's unfair that your iPhone comes with a web browser and that's that's set by default and like that's unfair competition. Now, maybe you could argue, you know, there's a technical argument about whether um, Apple should allow Chrome to use its own rendering engine. But, you know, the the sense of, of, of where the competitive thresholds might sit and what the market definition might look like is, I think, actually even more complicated than it, than it was in, at, at that point, because, you know, it's relatively easy in 2000 to say Microsoft has no competition. Now, that was true, but wrong, because what I, Microsoft had no competition in PC operating systems, and arguably today it still kind of has no competition in PC operating systems. I mean, yes, Apple is a lot more than it was, but if you're going to buy 100,000 desktops for a big company, you're only going to buy Windows. But does that mean that Microsoft dominates the tech industry today? Like, no one's been as afraid of Microsoft for 20 years. What kind of dominance are we worried about? Are we worried about their dominant? Were we worried about Microsoft's dominance of PC operating systems, or were we worried about Microsoft's dominance of the tech industry? Are we worried about Google's, or as I say, how many monopolies do we have to choose from? Are you worried about a certain number of companies' dominance of the tech industry, or about the dominance of their own industries? Because guess what, you know. Here we are 30 or 40 years later, IBM still dominates mainframes and no one cares. It doesn't give them any dominance of anything that anybody cares about. It does not have any effect on innovation. IBM has not shipped anything innovative since about 1994. Um, coincidentally, they've shipped more patents than anybody else since every year since 1994. Same thing for Microsoft. Microsoft still dominates PC operating systems, but like no one cares. That's not where the innovation is anymore. And so there's also this sort of, it's another term, as I said, it's kind of another term on the market definition. It's not just how do you define social or search but should you maybe think also thinking at a kind of a broader level as you know are we concerned about the dominance of search or the dominance of tech is that what we're worried about are we worried that google stops new startups or are we worried that google stops new search engines because those are kind of different questions so my it's interesting you raising the microsoft example i mean i wondered a little bit with the facebook meta example whether i mean what happened microsoft part of the story why it became so anodyne in the in the view of policymakers was just that it was surpassed by others. So Google, yeah. whether I mean we'll have to see where the market dynamics go in advertising. But if if the competition does increase from Amazon, Apple, TikTok, others, 
and the, the the relative share of the market that Meta and others have goes down, then perhaps they'll come out of the crosshairs a little bit of antitrust authorities in the same oh, yeah, way that Microsoft. Well, yeah, it'll Microsoft. take it'll take five years for for, for people to notice that, of course. Um, I mean, I think the, the there's also, I mean, you know, sort of sort of different aspects of this. Um, so one aspect is. Um, that um, there is share of consumer versus share of advertising. And so your market definition from an advertiser perspective might look quite different from your market definition from a consumer perspective. Um, A second might be that um, these businesses are mostly about network effects and the network effects are kind of internal to the product, not the holding company. So the YouTube network effects are quite separate to search network effects to the extent there are any search network effects, which is actually more debatable than one might think. Um, But I mean, for sake of argument, if you made Instagram and WhatsApp separate companies, it wouldn't make it any easier to compete with Instagram. If you made WhatsApp a separate company, that that doesn't mean everyone will go and start using iMessage in Europe. So the network effects are in the product, not the company. And so if you made iMessage and YouTube separate companies, that might increase competition for advertisers but it wouldn't increase change competitive dynamic for consumers because for advertisers now they've got they can bargain between meta and instagram which today they can't obviously but for consumers it doesn't change anything part of me wonders whether the current downturn we're seeing might see a rehabilitation to some extent in what is sort of termed in europe at least as big tech so on the one hand we're seeing potentially more competition in advertising we're going to probably see advertising spend go down there's going to be a, you know, apocalyptic stories about you know how Meta isn't the company it used to be, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. On the other, um, when we look at antitrust and competition policy, if we are going to see more companies fail or more companies distressed, and presumably there is a there's a greater argument that perhaps has been made in recent years that big tech should be that exit option, that big tech should be allowed more scope to acquire some of these companies than has perhaps been the fashion in antitrust policymaker circles over the last few years. Um, We saw during the COVID pandemic, which obviously isn't quite over, but the height of it has sort of passed, that the CMA in the UK actually allowed Amazon, after having initial reservations, Amazon to take a stake, a higher stake in delivery than it had previously had, because it decided that, I think it was called a failing firm because of uh, the finance. So I wondered that having regulators all shifted away from allowing, basically moving towards stopping what they called killer acquisitions by big tech, we might see a move back the other way as a result. Yeah, so I think the killer acquisition thesis, I think is bizarre. I can only think, genuinely only think of one killer acquisition in like 20 years, which is Intuit buying um, Mint. Mint was a consumer finance app that made it much easier to do your taxes, and Intuit has this sort of um, somewhat controversial business um, making this, um, um, selling tax prep software and lobbying the government to make the tax code more complicated. I mean, I can name ones that they screwed up that weren't competitive threats. I mean, there's a sort of sad story about um, Google buying Nest, but like, in no planet was Nest a competitive threat to Google. It was a completely different business. I mean, Twitter buying Vine, did they screw it up? Um, I mean, there's an interesting, the, the sort of the acquisition story is kind of interesting, actually, because um, well, another interesting part of it is that because of this narrative, so there's been this talking point in antitrust circles that Google, the big tech companies bought hundreds and hundreds of, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acquisitions and like a tiny number of them got called in for review. And this is a sort of systemic policy failure. 
And so as a result of this, the FTC last summer got Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft to list every acquisition they'd made over a hundred over a million dollars, which previously like below the sum threshold, which is like, I don't know, $50 million or something. And so anything under that they hadn't reported. And so I wrote about this. And the sort of headline is that there are, I think there were 616 deals in total, of which 400 in the US. So 400 divided by five divided by 10. It's like, oh, that's actually not that many deals per company per year. Second point, I think the vast majority of them were less than $10 million and less than 10 people. And in case this isn't, the implication of that isn't obvious, and maybe if you don't work in tech or know startups, it may not be obvious. The entrepreneur decides whether the, whether to sell. If Google buys your, Google doesn't just come and say we're buying your company. They make you an offer, and you have to accept it. It's not like you know a public market where like they come and buy the stock and then they bought you. If you're a startup, the entrepreneur has generally has the majority of the stock themselves. So if Google bought that company for $6 million seven years after it was founded, why did the entrepreneur take $6 million? Especially given, as we were saying earlier, we've been in the hottest market for startup funding in, in history, literally in history. And if you've got an idea, if you're building a company that's a credible chance to be a $100 million or a billion dollar company, you'll have VCs leaving term sheets under the windscreen wipers of your car as you're parked outside the Starbucks on Sand Hill Road. And yet Google offered you $5 million and you took it. Why? Because it wasn't on a path to being a $100 million or a billion dollar company. You sold it because it was an aqua hire or because it hadn't worked or because it was never actually going to be that big. But the idea that an entrepreneur would take, and this is the crucial point, the entrepreneur chooses to take a $3 million check after they're building the company for seven years. Why did they take $3 million? Because it hadn't worked. And so you that talking point that there are these hundreds and hundreds of companies that are being bought and killed, and like it's nonsense. I look at the numbers. Of course it's not. Meanwhile, and I think this is actually another like even more crucial point, and I'm kind of curious what you think about this. Um, how many do people outside tech understand how many startups there are? Because the, in, so in Silicon Valley every year on the NVCA data, there's something between four and 5,000 companies founded, funded every year. And so we've got 400 US companies bought over 10 years versus, let's round it down, let's say 40,000 startups founded in that period. And then of all of, then you go and you look at those, those 400 exits. And, you know, I gave one case of the side of this is how many of them were tiny. I think there was the other threshold is have them how many of them were quite big. How many of them were over $50 million, which is the point that maybe somebody made some money. You know, even a 20 or 30 million acquisition, is, a VC would have lost money on that, especially in opportunity cost. And I think from memory, it was like maybe two or three dozen out of 40,000 startups. And in the same period, the total number of, again, you go look at the NVCA data, the total number of VC exits for more than $50 million was about 2,500. So I feel like there are people going around who think that the big tech companies go and buy all the good startups and kill them. And it's like 1% or less of the number of startups out there. To your question, I don't think that 
policymakers, certainly in Europe, have those numbers in their mind. I think what they have in their mind is those sort of famous cases. So whether that, you know, for right or wrong, mm. WhatsApp being bought by Facebook is the one that they go back to. Um, in the UK, it's DeepMind being bought by Google Alphabet. It, it, and, and often in their mind, it's less startups, more scale-ups, high-growth companies that they're thinking about. So I think it's more the symbolism. The interesting one to me, I think, is Instagram. Because Instagram was, I think, seven employees and a no revenue and a billion dollars. And so you can go and find this wonderful clip from John Stewart on The Daily Show. Um, here is Instagram, and it's a little app that lets you take pictures and put a filter on them. And then you cut to John Stewart say, so it's an app that just makes you make your pictures suck. Why are we talking about this? Then you cut to the headlines. A billion dollars, a billion dollars, a billion dollars. Cut to John Stewart. A billion dollars of money? The reason is just worth playing that clip a hundred times to the CMA. Like, you think it's obvious that that was anti-competitive? Are you completely sure that was obvious then. So, okay, let's take this theme because we. I want to f- finish up on just the, what, what this all means for regulators and how they should think about the future of the sector. There's two bits that sort of jump out to me from that. One is around how do the regulators, there's this whole idea about regulators getting ahead. How do they anticipate what's going to come? And then there's how do c- corporates communicate to regulators and policymakers what is important. So let's take the first one and then and go from there. So on the first one, for authorities like the CMA or DG Competition or whatever the competition authority or policymaker department that we're talking about, if they are trying to get ahead, if they look to say the metaverse, so if we're going to narrow that down, so we're talking about VR or AR, which as you've talked about on I think on a recent podcast, you see the future there being some form of ecosystem, so some form of equivalent of what we see with Apple's App Store at the moment, but on, on the metaverse to help make this function and work. If that's the case, then they're going to be thinking, right, who is going to try and establish that position? Who's going to be the next dominant player and how do we regulate them? Does that point to the fact, have they got it right, I suppose, is my question with the Digital Markets Act? Now, I know you don't like some of the details of it, mm. but on the on the overall approach of trying to basically move before harm and dominance appears rather than waiting for slightly clunky competition processes to happen afterwards. Do you think that's the right way ahead to try and meet with the evolving market? So I think there's a sort of profound set of profound challenges to the sort of theory and practice of regulation in an industry that moves this quickly and that where market definitions are spread this broadly. It's a challenge to, you know, to get inside the reaction loop that might take multiple years in an industry where the whole industry can change in multiple years. Now, one aunt's argument would be, well, then it's the, you're overstating the competitive problem if the whole thing changes. Like, yes, but it's still a problem now. Um, but there's a sort of a basic like institutional problem in reacting when your market definitions are so broad, when you are spread across so many countries, um, and when everything changes so quickly, and your whole conception of what the business is changes every five years. So, secondly, you have a kind of fundamental challenge in conflict between different regulators. The most basic conflict is between privacy and competition. So I was at a competition conference a couple of years ago, and one of the privacy competition regulators said, look, you know, we go to Facebook and say, you have to do this. And they go across the road in the competition, and the privacy regulator says, you absolutely must not do that. And, you know, this is a real problem. 
you know, you can go to Instagram and say competition regulator says you must make it easier to get the data out and the privacy regulator says you must make it harder to get the data out. There's not like an easy solution. You can't just say, we'll fix it. You, you actually have to choose which one you want. And that's sort of my the, the root of my frustration with parts of the DMA is it sort of says you must um, do this and also that and also you must do it without any conflicts. Well, like, sorry, you've got right, you're going to have to choose which one you want. The other, again, kind of theoretical point here is I don't think it's a good idea to try and regulate a market that doesn't exist and to try and predict how it's going to work. I mean, I don't think the metaverse is a thing at all. I think saying we need to regulate the metaverse is like saying we need to regulate the mobile internet. It's like it's just a new device. It's not like there's going to be this whole separate thing in parallel to the internet. It's just the internet on VR with new kinds of apps and new kind of experiences just as the internet. Mobile internet is just the internet, but on a smartphone with a different say screen and new sensors and new capabilities. And which to me makes it absurd to say things like, well, you know, we need to have a German version of the metaverse. Well, it's like saying we need to have a German version of the internet. Well, what do you mean? Um, And so I think like trying to like pre-plan how a market will evolve is a grossly misguided kind of intellectual construct. It's like trying to pre-plan a regulatory structure for smartphones in 2000 when you had no idea that there would be things called app stores. But do you think maybe that then talks to, so the, the, the British version of the DMA which is going to be the digital markets unit is a similar concept, but it's going to be less prescriptive in the outset about what those measures are. So when you're talking about that, the difficulty around the measures about whether squaring off privacy uh, and interoperability with regards to messaging service in the DMA, the DMU, as far as I understand it, won't be prescriptive about that. It will just empower the CMA to act and evolve with the technology as it happens, but be able to act in a preemptive way rather than... Ex-ante rather than ex-post. Yeah. And I think that's certainly the future, part of the future. I think another way of, of kind of grouping many of the things we've said is there's a layer of... There's a question of what layer of abstraction do you operate at? So do you try and do one court case or one rule about one specific set of things in one industry, whether that's the CMA or the DOJ suing somebody for breaking the Sherman Antitrust Act or doing a five-year investigation? Do you do one thing or do you try and have a generalized set of principles for how everything that works so that then something comes along and says, oh, well, there's a clause in the DMA that covers that? And the problem is, and I'm not going to, we won't do a deep dive into the DMA, but you know, there's a, there's a paragraph in the DMA that says you have to make messaging apps interoperable. And the problem is that the paragraph of itself is nonsensical and the paragraph is apparently turned into a 30-page policy document because you can't do that in one paragraph. And so it's sort of like trying to say there's so many, I mean, this is a metaphor I often use in talking about regulating tech is it's kind of like saying we're going to regulate cars. And instead of taking 75 years, we're going to do it in one year. And instead of having lots and lots of separate laws, we'll have like one of have one law that just covers it all and then everything can plug into it. And like, yeah, but then you discover, yes, but the bit, the, the, the one paragraph that says you can't get drunk and drive, it needs to be a bit more complicated than that. And the one paragraph that says you have to make the car really safe so no one dies in a collision. Well, yeah, guess what? That is going to turn into 30,000 pages. And so you kind of can't do just have one law that covers all internet services where people interact. So, Benedict, last quick question. Uh, you mentioned the idea of, a, you know, should there be a German metaverse and how that concept is, is strange and sort of doesn't really make sense. And we've heard Emmanuel Macron talk about how there needs to be a European metaverse. I mean, the, just to finalise our discussion, 
there's been this angst, which is what that shows in Europe about the nationality of tech. And that's basically been more or less since Nokia fell off a cliff um, and suddenly Europe realized it missed out on the smartphone uh, revolution, at least it missed out in the sense of the companies that were leading it were not European. So do you think that Europeans or indeed any other nationality should care about the nationality of tech? Um, or is it more? Is there a more nuanced answer to that that is, on the whole, maybe not, but there are certain parts, it could be semiconductor production, it could be something else, that you think where nationality certainly does matter? There are clearly geopolitical strategic questions around dependencies of supply chains on countries that might not be friendly. There are questions of culture and practice around how media functions or how online safety or privacy or security functions. There are questions around economic growth and where is the benefit from company creation. There, And those are sort of different Topics now, the fact that your smartphone runs is made runs an operating system produced in California probably isn't a problem. Doesn't affect company creation in Europe. It would be nice if it was made in Finland, but if you're not Finnish, like it doesn't make any difference if you're trying to start a company. If you're trying to do, if you're drawing a mobile software company in Belgium, it doesn't actually matter to you whether um, Android was invented was created in Helsinki or Mountain View. Um, that's a platform that you can use. And so you kind of have to separate out those, those kind of questions. What, what is the problem here exactly? Is the problem, why don't we have more startups? Or is it our stuff is controlled by foreigners who won't do, don't do things the way we like it? That's a diff, very different kind of question. It's one that America is grappling now with TikTok, but of course one that Europeans have had, the rest of the world's had to deal with for 25 years. You know, the, the why are they no giant European tech companies hides like half a dozen other more important questions, I think. Okay, Benedict, thank you very much. You've been extremely uh, generous with your time. I enjoyed the sort of canter through, you know, where we see the market now. There could be a rehabilitation potentially for some some of the larger tech firms as the, the, the ripples of the financial downturn that we're seeing come through. But there are going to be continued issues around how tech policy and tech regulation are applied to ever-evolving uh, industries. So we'll have to see how that pans out, and perhaps in the future we'll get a chance to reprise this conversation. And uh, Yes, yeah, so you can play it back line by line and see what we got right. <laughs> so um, many thanks for everyone for joining. Uh, just as always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of the multitude of trends that we've, we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Uh, you can find our contact details on our website, uh, which is www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.